Welcome to At The Edge. Across this podcast series, we will bring together voices from across industry and academia to consider the role of IoT and cybersecurity in achieving net zero. This episode's theme is cities, but we talked about a lot more than just cities. Cities are, quote unquote, machines for living. There are emergent behaviours that we do not know or are able to articulate right now. And to me, that is the, the scariest thing. What this points to, I think, is a necessity for the rediscovery of a public intellectual, an activist, interventionist, academic cohort. These are all things we consider as we discuss IoT at the edge of smart cities. With us today are Colin Williams, visiting lecturer at the Cybersecurity Centre at De Montfort University, with over 20 years of experience of working in industry at Softwarebox Limited and working on cyber-related projects with the public sector. Colin is a historian of cybernetics and is a founding member of the Cyber Policy Centre. Welcome, Colin. Hello. And from within Petrus, we have Julie McCann, Professor of Computer Systems at Imperial College London. Professor McCann heads up Adaptive Emergent Systems Engineering in the Department of Computing at Imperial, leads the resilient and robust infrastructure challenge part of the data-centric engineering theme in the Alan Turing Institute, and is PI for the NRF-funded Singapore EcoCities Initiative. Professor McCann is Deputy Director of Petrus and therein leads the Logistics 4.0 project with the Tate Modern, ARM and Ordnance Survey. She is Imperial PI for the EPSRC Science of Sensing Systems Software Programming Grant. And until recently, she was the co-director of the Intel Collaborative Research Institute on Sustainable Connected Cities, the co-PI of the NEC Smart Water Lab, and director of the Cross-Imperial Smart Connected Futures Network. Uh, hello, Julie. How are you doing? <laughs> I'll now give myself a pat on the back for getting through all of those names without, without a, a single <laughs> error. Uh, the four S's was the one that was particularly making me sweat. Um, so, um, Colin, if it's all right, I'm going to start with you. You describe yourself as an historian of cybernetics and the relationships between cybernetics and the material and intellectual forms of cyber now and in the future. For our listeners not familiar with cybernetics, could you please tell us a bit more about this and why the history of cybernetics is relevant to the sustainable future of cities? Yeah, this is the point at which even the eyes of academics tend to glaze over, I have to say. Um, If ever there was a candidate for the appellation of a lost history, then I think that the history of cybernetics fits firmly and and squarely in that candidacy. So for want of a a discernible starting point, the story of cybernetics begins in 1948 with a, a publication of a book called Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine by an American mathematician called Norbert Wiener. Norbert Wiener is one of history's remarkably uh, idiosyncratic characters, and we could speak, I could certainly speak for the next hour about his idiosyncrasies. He's part of a community of intellectuals and academics in the United States and the United Kingdom, who certainly during the Second World War and actually before it, have been thinking a great deal about the interactions between humans and increasingly complicated machines, and also about the way in which a mathematical property, which they come to call information, can flow within machines and between humans and machines. And so Claude Shannon, 
and Norbert Wiener formulate pretty much identical ideas about the mathematical nature of information at pretty much exactly the same time. So they start to think about the way in which information as this mathematical property that constitutes order and pattern and coherence and predictability, essentially a statistical construction, can constitute not merely a mechanism for the conveyance of meaning, and they separate information and meaning very, 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 very rigorously, at least in the early stages of what becomes information theory, but can function as a control system within complex systems. And a British cyberneticist, a chap called Ross Ashby, starts to postulate that information is what he calls mathematically isomorphic, as in it can transliterate from one system type to another. They latch on to the similarities between what are then incredibly nascent binary, digital, general purpose, reprogrammable computers. And they start to explore what to us would seem to be remarkably contemporary themes about the extent to which the human neurological system and these new wondrous binary, uh, digital, automatic, general purpose, reprogrammable computers exhibit the same kinds of properties. So initially, they're concerned and interested with the points of comparison and similarity between organic and inorganic information processing constructions. They're pursuing something that looks remarkably like our notions of embodied cognition. So they're interested in entities that can sense and react and adapt and so forth. But initially, they're thinking about this in terms of kind of straight crossovers between non-biological and biological cognitive embodied uh, cognitive entities. In the second book that Wiener writes about cybernetics, uh, uh, called The Human Use of Human Beings, uh, subtitled Cybernetics and Society, he explicitly extends all of these ideas to a sociological analysis in which information is central. And so, therefore, the idea emerges in cybernetics that, for instance, specifically, and Wiener would feel right at home in these conversations, cities are, it's a, this is not a direct quote, it's a, 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 an essentialist synthesis, but cities are, quote-unquote, machines for living. Even in the, in the 1950s, cybernetics postulates the existence of multi-agent socio-technical systems which exhibit self-adaptive uh, uh, properties. So the guy whose thinking essentially informs the development of ARPANET as this thing that's become the foundation of the internet was a chap called J.C.R. Licklider, who was a colleague and collaborator of Norbert Wiener's. And uh, for instance, Licklider writes a paper called The Computer as a Communication Device. In this, he develops an earlier idea he's had of what he called, quote, the man-computer symbiosis, in which humans and non-human cognitive entities will come together in a mutually transformative relationship. The use of computers as, well, essentially what we would call voice assistants. He prefigures Siri, he prefigures Alexa, he prefigures the use of the internet as a mechanism for what we're doing today, exactly what we're doing today. Fascinating. Thank you. I think you actually did a brilliant job of, of summarising a very complex um, and fascinating history there. So thank you very much. And I think we'll come back to quite a lot of that. Um, before we move on, though, Julia, I want to ask you your opening question. And as, as our Petrus expert, I'm picking on you a bit and I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> with, with sustainable cities in mind, what is the single biggest IoT cybersecurity issue you think our listeners should be aware of? Should be aware of or which they consider? Um, okay, so I think the one that, that tends to jump into people's minds when they're speaking is probably privacy. 
because you know these devices are uh, monitoring, they're observing, and they're sold to us for our benefit. And the question, obviously, is is it a sense that they're being watched or observed? And and so I think privacy is the first thing that jumps into people's minds. And I think the evidence for for that has been, you know, for example, in the when COVID first broke out and and apps and so on were being put forward, there was a lot of rejection of those apps because of that mistrust. So I think it's evidence of what it is like from a the perception of the individual, the citizen in the city. I think the perception from um, maybe your your sort of those who look after the city or those who have skin in the game from a city level perspective, I think their concerns obviously are that they're putting out these devices that are controlling aspects of the city, the traffic lights and so on. And there is evidence that these have been hacked. So I would say the first thing is obviously there's a lot of devices that are going out there and they're on these low-powered, low-resourced uh, infrastructures that frankly do not have the same engineering rigor that uh, the things that they're attached to have had, the buildings, the bridges, they have not had that. Indeed, I would even argue that they have not had the same scientific and engineering rigor that even normal software that sits on a data center has. And that is the problem with them. And this kind of overlaps with some of the cybernetic um, conversation we just had with Colin, whereby because of these systems and our lack of proper engineering of them, there are emergent behaviours that we do not know or are able to articulate right now. And to me, that is the, the scariest thing. These behaviours are not well explored. We haven't even a mechanism or a way of modelling them uh, or, or ways of articulating them. And examples of that would be what I describe cyber physical interactions. And I'll give you an example of that. When we were putting out sensors on what would have been a mock water network, what we were hoping to build would be the first prototype of an internet of water. Okay. And an internet of water is basically it consists of lots of sensors to understand state, how much water is being flung down that pipe, uh, what condition the pipe is in, those kinds of information. And then the actuators or the controllers or the uh, valves, if you want, um, route that water around problems, route that water to improve um, customer demand and so on and reduce costs and improve sustainability. So that was our dream. We instrumented it with sensors, we instrumented it with valves, and then we started to play with this. And we found that the sensor systems started to die sooner than the actual infrastructure in, in which they're placed. So they start to become unreliable. Now, as you know, sensor-based systems don't just die. They fade in unusual ways. And uh, and as a result, we don't really understand that fading, let's say, as well as we should. And what we also did, for example, was we thought we could use the vibration of the pipe as a mechanism to power our sensor system, therefore allowing it to last for hundreds of years, potentially. But what we ended up doing is we found that we were moving the valves in such a way to maximize the computer sensor lifetime, which impacted negatively on the water network. And so that interaction is a real problem that we don't really well understand. Now, the thing is, though, that, that immersive behavior can be manipulated by someone who's got malicious intent. So, for example, to keep themselves alive, a lot of these sensor-based systems rely on the emergent-style algorithms, uh, bio-inspired algorithms to do that because they have to adapt to failure. They have to become um, not necessarily intelligent, but uh, adaptive and agile. The thing is, you can then lure it into behaviors that... Um, 
are uh, not what they were intended for as a result. And so it's not just a case of sticking a load of encryption and strong authentication and so on onto them. We have to understand the behaviours and we have to have ways of being able to test those behaviours that we don't do at the moment. Fantastic. Thank you. That's been an excellent introduction. Thank you. And and I think we've got a fascinating conversation on our hand. And I'm going to open up with a really broad question, which is going to define our conversation in in terms of do we agree or disagree on the following question. But um, what's clear is that if we're moving towards a sustainable future, behaviours are going to change. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on the relationship between sustainable behaviours and digital behaviours and how we try to manipulate both or fail to manipulate both. So I'm hoping that we can return to that in a moment. But my, my opening question, and anyone can jump in on this, is do you believe that the Internet of Things and edge computing will play a role in cities becoming more environmentally sustainable. I want to check that we're not acting on that assumption first. If we had Norbert Wiener here, let's channel Norbert Wiener for the moment, he would say several things. Uh, One, he would say, which he said explicitly in the human use of human beings, that human society becomes inexorably more complex over time. Uh, Humans gather together into ever more complex and information-dense sociological constructions. Look at the trend to urbanisation, as a for instance. You know, it is an aphorism that's become trite, but it's nonetheless true that a modern city is, you know, n times more complex than an entire nation-state 400 years ago. He would also echo the words of an American scientist politician called Vannevar Bush, who wrote an article in 1945 after heading up what was called the Office of Scientific Research and Development, where he had military command and control over 6,000 American scientists during the Second World War. And Vannevar Bush said that unless humans outsource their cognition to machines, then human society will collapse under the weight of its own informational complexity. Wiener would also say that they would have said, that I did say, that the unthinking, uncritical application of these technologies to this problem itself is a source of societal collapse. So there's a great, uh, as it were, moral imperative placed upon us. The word behaviour is absolutely critical here. Part of the fundamental insight of cybernetics is that once systems reach a certain level of complexity, any attempt to understand, as it were, the inner mechanism of the system, not so much as mechanism, but the way in which the mechanism enacts, is doomed to failure. So if we think about the internet, the internet in the jargon is, well, it's a dynamic packet switching network. It's self-adaptive. So we know the rules of how the packet switching nodes work. But when you set an individual IP packet off on its merry travels wherever it needs to get to, like the ones that we're using now, you have no way of knowing at the start the pathways that these IP packets are going to take across this incredibly complicated network. All the switches are fairly simple, really, but the pathways uh, are not. Therefore, the outcomes are indeterminate. If you have an an undeterministic system, such as the stuff we're talking about, you have to approach the governance of this system in a radically different way versus deterministic systems. You can't model contingencies in a prior sense. It's a fool's errand. You can't do things like signature-based defences. Even heuristics are essentially a complete waste of time. 
you're talking about statistical self-normalizations. You're talking about the constant monitoring of behavioral patterns. You're talking about the constant deployment of homeostatic and autonomic mechanisms like the human immune system, like the human autoimmune system. You're talking about establishing set points around which the system maintains a complex, dynamic, self-adaptive equilibrium, not static. It's not pyramid balancing on its tip. It's more like a gyroscope in constant movement. And it's the movement which enables the stability, which enables the resilience, which enables the behaviours that you say that you want. One of the mantras of cybernetics is the purpose of the system is what it does. And therefore, the capacity to monitor the behaviour and to introduce changes in the inputs without necessarily having any prior knowledge of the way in which those will traverse through the system, but being able to monitor the effects that they generate and constantly iterate. Sense, process, adapt. Sense, process, adapt. Sense, process, adapt. Brings to the another big idea in cybernetics, which is feedback. The emanation from the system creates a signal which transmits to the outside world, which modifies the outside world. Okay, define inside and outside of a system. It's essentially arbitrary, but there we go. Uh, that modification to the externality, to the environment, is sensed by the system and becomes an input to the system. Therefore, the system self-governs through mechanisms of homeostasis. That's kind of the philosophical direction this has to go in, I think. But notions of linear deterministic systems inherited from uh, the industrial age mapped onto these complex, dynamic, non-deterministic systems of whatever it is that cyber is, fool's errand, recipe for absolute disaster. Okay, so terrible question is what you're saying. That's no, a great <laughs> question because it gets us in this line of thinking because it draws this, I think, this absolutely necessary and, and as it were, immovable juxtaposition between the way in which one thinks about conceptualizes and, and contemplates the governance and regulation of deterministic systems versus the way in which one has to approach non-deterministic systems. And that's kind of, that's a point where we have to camp, I think. Okay, excellent. Um, so, Julie, do you think that IoT will make cities more sustainable? And do you want to comment on, on anything that Colin have just said? Um, okay, so I would like to be more positive about this. Sure, we need to build systems that are resilient and that the data is as truthful as possible. We need to be able to ethically decide on what we're going to deploy and how we're going to deploy it and where that data goes. We absolutely need to keep monitoring them. And that has to be there. That feedback loop has to be there because the systems, you know, they're not, they won't evolve out of what we have now, but they, they have the potential of their usage evolving beyond what we expect now. But I really do think that they can help cities. Um, I have seen it myself. For example, um, we have done a, a little sort of what's like a little baby digital twin, if you want, a model of uh, energy food water nexus. And that meant that we had IoT devices out where the food was being grown and where it was being processed. And we were able to determine things like, for example, you know, the amount of water that was being used and how we could reduce the amount of water being used, uh, pinpoint where we could provide fertilizers and so on. And I know that's not to do with cities, but it's a concrete example of where we were able to identify things like energy savings, things like water savings that could determine whether or not we feed people in the future. So I really do think that data, obviously, it has to be ethically sourced in itself. It has to be reliable. And we have to keep an eye on everything that we put these systems into. But it can be used. It really actually can be used. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. I mean, this is such a huge subject. And we've already talked about future-proofing technology, complexity of cities, of humankind, of technology, reliability of data and the importance of that data and behavior. 
you know, technology in general, but in particular, Internet of Things may be part of the solution in terms of informing behaviors and understanding what we need to do. But technology itself can be a short-term solution in terms of the material nature of it or the consequences or the negative byproducts of that technology. Um, and that brings me to one of the questions I really wanted to ask, actually, which was, as we move to the circular economy, you know, are we thinking, as these technologies are being introduced into cities, are we thinking about the end of their life cycle? Is that being considered at the moment or is it going to be the next problem? Julie, you're shaking your head. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm afraid we don't really think of the life cycle of these systems and their end date comes sooner than people realise due to the, the components and the fact that it's very difficult to update them over the air. Um, so a lot of the cases we have to update them by taking them in and either placing them out or updating them literally with new machines. And also the components themselves aren't exactly biodegradable. One of the longest IoT systems placed in the city of London is probably going out from 2003 to now. It's a 800 node system and it's in front of people and they haven't noticed it. It's battery powered. It's very much the small end of wireless sensor networks or IoT, if you want. And what they have had to do is they've basically had to replace them, replace them, replace them. So the network as it was at the start is nothing like the network that it is now. Indeed, I have out in some fields and I'll not say where hardware decaying. <laughs> test hardware decaying that I haven't been allowed to pick up again. So this is a problem, but I do know there are people looking at biodegradable sensing-based systems. And so this is something that I think our materials communities and engineers will look into and be able to to maybe produce something from it. Does the, does the circular economy present a, a security risk in terms of components being reused? Well, the components are the same components you get in everyday computers. So it's the same recyclability as a computer system. There's a fair amount of, let's say, more maker end rather than professional end of IoT people in London at the moment, for example, who are building the casing out of more biodegradable 3D printed materials. But beyond that, the electronic components themselves are, are those that can be recycled in your typical computer system. It's the same components, the same materials as such. You talked there about the designers and the implementers of this technology. Um, Colin, I'd like to come back to you in terms of the complexity that you talked about and the way we shouldn't simplify behavior um, and the challenging nature of behavior as a concept. Whose hands is the, is the future of cities in? And, and, and I'm asking that with, a, with an IoT lens. So is, is the future of IoT bottom-up innovation and the data that people generate or is it top-down management from local authorities or big tech? This kind of brings together a number of, of the themes that we've been talking about already rather neatly I think. So I mean first of all I very much want to echo what Julie said about the positivity here. I think that you know whatever the IoT is, whatever this interconnectedness of stuff, this decentralization of stuff, it's a necessary but not sufficient precondition for the development of human society onwards into the 21st century. It is not sufficient, but it is absolutely necessary. So the idea, for instance, that we can continue to have the same kind of electricity generation and distribution system as we currently have is barking mad. The idea that we might have embedded in those devices that consume electricity sensorial capacity that remits information back to a distributed distribution system, which is therefore self-adaptive and self-regulating with lots of microgeneration, that's a different kettle of fish altogether, and that's the direction that we need to go into. 
second thread I want to weave into this is this notion of, you know, the how do we innovate? Well, historically, innovation is uncomfortable. It's dissonant. It's disruption. You can generally spot a genuine innovation in the sense that you didn't see it coming and you don't like it, whoever you are, because it really necessitates messing with the way that you do things. If you're in a position of power and authority in a kind of sociological sense, a political sense, and it makes you deeply uncomfortable, it's probably an innovation. So I'm thinking here not about specifically, just as a for instance, not about the particular manifestation of crypto coin, but the underlying architectures of the blockchain. They disrupt notions of centralized political authority. The cryptocurrencies themselves have broken the monopoly of the state over the generation and control of the money supply. So therefore, even in developed economies, the state no longer has any knowledge whatsoever of the quantum of the money supply. It's gone. It's indeterminate now. Okay, so to kind of come to a more direct answer to your question, bringing those things together, we suffer a great deal from what C.P. Snow in the 1950s called the two cultures, the separation between the arts and the sciences, which is a catastrophe. We haven't fixed it one iota since Snow wrote about it in the 50s. In fact, it's got worse since he wrote about it. Now, this separation has fed into and reinforced another dynamic, which is that academics, particularly academics, have become compartmentalised, segregated sociologically crushed essentially under the ref and all of the nonsense that that, that, that goes with it. I'm not a practicing academic. I've got no stat. I can say this kind of thing and, and, and as it were, get away with it. What this points to, I think, is a necessity for the rediscovery of a public intellectual, an activist, interventionist, academic cohort. A great deal of the necessary intellectual underpinning that we need to inform the political decision-making processes, the legislative processes, the regulatory processes, exists already in academia. But it needs to be much more impactful, to use a horrible neologism. It needs to penetrate much more deeply into the political discourse, political with a small p. And so I think that there is a definite imperative. How it's satisfied is a different question, I accept. But there is a definite imperative here for a renewed, reinvigorated, reinvented sense of interventionism from the academic community and a refusal to let those in positions of social and political and economic authority off the hook with lazy pedestrian retrograde thinking or policy making and that then also then talks to a much more robust public debate space than we currently have about some of these questions so colin over 20 years ago i had my phd in computing and the one thing that i noticed that iot brought about that no other computing innovation i saw did really was to join the arts and the sciences together. If I look around London, I see all the the maker communities. A lot of these are in the art colleges, the architectural colleges, and so on. And, And actually, it wasn't until I started working in IoT that I actually started to work with the arts an awful lot more. For example, in in the Bartlett, they do the interactive architecture course, which is sort of urban design, but with technology embedded in it. And and I would never have come across that in the days of the big servers or PCs or anything like that, really. So I actually would say that movement towards the joining up of the sciences happened when, when IoT started to kick off as a thing. In which case, more of the same. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. We like arguments for more more research into uh, Internet of Things uh, at Petrus. That's excellent. 
we are we are sadly running out of time so i am going to grab the wheel a little bit and 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 veer us towards one final question and it's been a fascinating conversation thank you we, we've considered the part that iot plays in sustainable future cities and the security of that i'd like us just for for one final question to look at it from the other perspective which is if climate change is an inevitable future to what extent will climate change and associated reactions make cities more vulnerable to cyber risks and harm, whether whether that's something going wrong because of climate change, the climate change breaking it, or whether it's because climate change makes it more vulnerable to attack. Does anybody have any thoughts on that before we wrap up? I have to say that's a hard one because climate change is gradual. And normally if you deploy systems out that will be, let's say, compromised due to changes in temperature or humidity or all those kinds of things, you would have upgraded it, you would have updated it. So that's a, that's a hard one, I think. But that's a good answer because it is, it's easy when we think of the future to be quite polarised and quite utopian or dystopian and, and think it's all going to be you know, um, Armageddon. Actually, a future mundane where we say, yeah, look, climate change is a problem, but it's a problem that we can deal with if we deal with it as it happens and if we upgrade as temperatures rise or as extreme weather events become more frequent. Mm-hmm. That's a very good answer. I mean, and the sensors can give us early indications of what's, what is changing and what is not. I think that's entirely right. I think you can flip the question right round on its head. It, I think you can argue that the more of the smartness that we have, the more of the interconnectedness that we have, the more of the sense process actuate mechanism that we have, the more self-adaptive the system is, the better off we'll be. The better we'll be able to manage the distribution of resources, the better we'll be able to reduce the consumption of the stuff that we don't want to consume, the better we'll be able to instantiate and sustain and maintain self-regulating systems which optimise the use of the resources and minimise the negative effects. Go back to the internet as an example. The internet works as brilliantly as it does because of its scale. It's the more of itness which has made it so resilient. It's the fact that n number of nodes in this vast interconnected complexity of everything can fail, and yet the darn system can continue to function. That's the point. So the more of this that we have, the more of the technology that we have providing it's wrapped up in all of the right ethical and moral and and blah, blah. You know, yeah, I don't wish to diminish that. That's important. But they're just things that we have to deal with. We have to get over them. We have to get through them. We cannot let them stand in the way. This stuff has got to be out there. We have to have this future of these interconnected, distributed, sensorially interconnected systems in exactly the same way as we had to invent the wheel and writing and the movable type printing press. It's the same level of societal and civilizational dependence. Fascinating. I think that's an excellent point to end on. But we're not going to end on that because this conversation has roamed all over and we have only scratched the surface of this huge behemoth of a topic um but one area we did go into which i wasn't expecting us to when i was preparing for this podcast was the relationship between material sciences and the arts in research (laughs) but it was a fascinating area we went into so for that reason julie has nominated herself to read us a poem to close on (laughs) which i'm extremely excited about so i'll hand over to julie but before we do i'll thank you for your time and your contributions it's been a fascinating conversation thank you very much over to you, Julie. Thank you. Okay, so this is kind of inspired from what we've been talking about today and the mixture of avenues that we've gone down. It's a poem uh, from 1967 that I use a lot when I'm doing public speaking about IoT systems and so on. And it's by Richard Brightigan. Uh, I hope you like it. It's called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. 
I like to think, and the sooner the better, of a cybernetic meadow where mammals and computers live together in mutually programming harmony, like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think, right now please, of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. I like to think, it has to be, of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labours and joined back to nature, returned to our mammal brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. Excellent. Thank you very much. And it is now the challenge to our next guests to end with their own poem, isn't it? So uh, we've started as we need to go on. Special thank you to Dr. Alan Chamberlain for the AI-generated music that we've used throughout the episode. If you'd like to find out more on this or some of the other work that we do at Petrus, the National Centre of Excellence for IoT Systems Cybersecurity, please visit our website at petrus-iot.org. Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you'll join us next time at The Edge.